Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, my lovely Betwixters. It's me, Kate Lister. I am here once again to help you stay safe. This is a podcast of an adult nature. It's spoken by adults to other adults in an adulty way about a range of adult subjects. And you should be an adult too. And if you persist in listening to this and you get offended, well, don't come crying to us because fair dues, you were warned. Twixter, won't you come in and join me at my dressing table? Today we are in Versailles and I am just colouring my veins with blue, you know, so they really pop and people can see them through my delicate, uber pale, thin skin. I've just put some white flour in my hair, washed my face with a cleanser made of stewed pigeons, which have been fermented for around about two weeks, and I'll be applying a white creamy powder, a slight rouge to my cheeks and lips, and of course, I'll be covering up my smallpox scars with faux beauty spots. I like to draw them in little heart shapes. Don't I sound sexy? This is 18th century France, my dear, and we do like to look good. So today we are going betwixt the powder stain sheets to take a closer look at makeup throughout the ages, from ancient Egypt to pre-revolutionary France, right up to the present day. What do you look for in a man? Oh, money, of course. <laughs> You're supposed to rise when an adult speaks to you. I make perfect copies of whatever my boss needs by just turning a knob and pushing the button. Yes, social courtesy does make a difference. Goodness, what beautiful time. Goodness had nothing to do with it, dearie. Hello and welcome back to Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society with me, Kate Lister. If you're over the age of 10, and in fact you should be if you're listening to this podcast, then you have already lived through multiple beauty trends. Thick eyebrows, thin eyebrows, contouring, don't contour, a dewy look, a matte look, winged liner, bright eyeshadow, crimped hair. I could go on and on and I have no doubt there will be so many more trends coming our way. Beauty ideals are changing and coming back round all the time, for better or for worse. But there are some trends I hope are never resurrected from history. Lead-based face powders, for example, mouse hair eyebrows, or face masks made from dog shit. Today, we are looking at the history of makeup with author Susan Stewart. Why did smooth skin become a religious matter? 
What did lipstick say about your social status in the Middle Ages? And who was selling poisoned makeup to Renaissance women so they could bump off their husbands? But before we get into all of that, this is the point in the show where I ask you if you wouldn't mind, just please, please do us a little favour. <laughs> I'm being serious now. If you would please do us a little favour and vote for us for the Listener's Choice Awards at the British Podcast Awards. You can follow the link in the show notes. And if enough of you click on the link, then not only do I have to stop nagging you about it, but we might even win, guys. We might even win. Right, let's get back to the show. Hello and welcome to Betwixt the Sheets. It's only Susan Stewart. How are you doing? Not bad. I'm recovering from a cold, but yeah, I'm fine. Thank you. Oh, summer colds, they're just the worst, aren't they? They just go on and on and on. <laughs> oh, well, do you know, I absolutely appreciate you taking the time to be here even more. And I'm so glad you are because yours is a subject that I adore. I'm such a sucker for makeup. I love it. I am so easily parted from my money when it comes to makeup. <laughs> it doesn't, I've got a PhD and yet all of my IQ falls out my ear when I'm confronted with a 21-year-old TikToker going, this is the best product ever. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what the companies are counting on. <laughs> oh, every time. But you study the history of makeup and cosmetics. I suppose my first question to you is a question that I get a lot as someone that studies the history of sex is why? Why do you study that? What's the point of that? You know, it kind of makes you really angry and go, well, I'll fucking tell you what the point of this is. But why study makeup? Well, perhaps I should tell you a wee bit about how I got into it. And then yes. that sort of explains it a bit. I left university a very long time ago, but by a twist of fate, I was able to get the opportunity to go back and do a PhD and when I was setting out to do that so that was in the mid-1990s dress was really the sort of thing everybody was really interested in dress and I thought oh yeah I'll go down that route because the subjects that I'd done at uni concentrated it was ancient history and Latin concentrated largely on economics and wars and things like that mm-hmm. um, so nobody was really interested in the sort of social side of it and I had always been fascinated by that it very quickly got narrowed down to cosmetics and perfumes and when I started it I had absolutely no idea that there was so much information out there and that goes for not just the Romans who I was doing my PhD on but across the centuries and that I think sort of draws out the fact that it's not irrelevant that it's fundamental to our projection of ourselves to others Mm. and it's also all about gender to some extent but not always it's not necessarily the most important aspect of it it's also about wealth and health and things like that so it marks us out as defines us in a sort of a way I think that's true and surprisingly enough everybody has something to say about cosmetics and most of history of course is written by men but many of them have a great deal to say about cosmetics so the mere fact that it's mentioned so often it enhances its importance, I think. We have such a strange attitude to it, don't we? Because a lot of what's been said about cosmetics is quite judgmental. But what do we mean by cosmetics? Because surely we all attempt to present ourselves in the... I mean, there are some people out there who just roll out of bed and just raw dog it through their lives and just don't make any effort whatsoever. But most of us, even if it's washing your face or trying to smell nice or, or combing your hair, or we're trying to present ourselves 
So it's strange that there's so much judgment around that. Perhaps we have to see beyond the rhetoric, though, because there is an mm. awful lot of rhetoric and the reality of the use of cosmetics is very much different. It's, it, it was much more commonly accepted, particularly because in the early days, back in the ancient Egypt or whatever, it, it was very closely associated with medicine. So the eye makeup, that has a religious connotation, the sort of eye of Ra. Wow. And also it was used to keep the flies and the sort of dust out of their eyes. So it's not just about wearing it as to beautify. There's a lot more to it than that. I didn't know that. The link between makeup and medicine, is that quite well established? Yes. I suppose in a way it's kind of coming back round again in terms of scented things. So the last book I wrote was actually about perfume. So, you know, aromatherapy, things like that, things mm. that make you smell good. But in the ancient world, I mean, face creams were meant to heal as well. And the sort of Renaissance period, it would be too conceal the ravages of disease or to try it almost as a prophylactic perhaps as well to prevent the marks from appearing. Wow. Let's try and take it right back. What is the earliest evidence that you found in your research of human beings using something that we could call like cosmetics? I would kind of hazard a guess that as soon as we'd finished drawing willies on cave walls, we went, oh, yeah. has anyone got any mascara? <laughs> like what's the earliest evidence that you found? Well, obviously, when it goes back to prehistoric times, we've got no writing, so we don't know exactly why they were using it. Not that we're relying on writing, because there's lots of evidence about cosmetics and art and non-literary, mm. like graffiti, things like that as well. But I would say that we can perhaps imagine that in prehistoric times belonging to a tribe or a mark belonging yes. or some sort of religious significance there's Otzi who is the Iceman, the, ice the Iceman yes, he has uh, tattoos of some sort on his knees on the back of his knees and on his ankles which may be for decoration but they also might be pressure points to do with arthritis because we think he may have suffered from arthritis so wow. Again, they were using them for a dual purpose, not just as a definition of themselves, yes, but also in terms of perhaps religious allegiance or tribal allegiance or for health purposes. How old is Otzi exactly? He's really old, isn't he? Yeah. So he died, we think, about 3,250 BC. And he has a large number of tattoos, actually. He has 61 tattoos. I didn't know that. Wow. But the ones we're sort of identifying as perhaps a little bit more than just cosmetic would be the ones on the on his ankles and on the back of his knees, which don't seem to be particularly prominent places that you know mm. you would put something you wanted somebody to notice. It seems that it might have been something that he used to treat arthritis or some sort of muscular illness that he possibly suffered from. After all he was quite a appears to have been quite an athletic and busy man, which yes. inevitably his structure would have worn down over time. Have we found other preserved bodies with similar tattoos? or? Yeah, there are some from the ancient Chinchero culture, which is in Chile, and they date from around 1800 BC. They seem to have moustaches tattooed on their faces. I don't know why that makes me laugh. I know, we don't really know why. And there's some Bronze Age ones as well that show that they took care of their bodies. Bronze Age burials where you find things like tweezers and other artefacts that could have been used for 
basic hygiene and these can be found in graves of men and women oh and bug bodies i love a bug body and yeah. they've got they tend to have like really beautifully preserved hair yeah. and braids yeah. and oils mm-hmm. and things don't they although with the passage of time it's difficult to tell what colour their hair would have been and whether or not it has been dyed or whether it had been just the effect of it over time. Probably one of the best preserved pieces of hair is the hair from the railway cemetery in York, which Ooh. people can go and see. It's a large sort of bun-like hair with pins in and it's red. It's from Roman times. There hasn't been much in the way of analysis done, so we don't know whether it was dyed red or whether it was oxidized if you like in the earth if that's a red hair dye that has lasted since the roman period and if it's lasted on the bug bodies as well i want to know what that is because that is impressive <laughs> that needs to be revived the trouble with red hair is comes and goes in terms of fashion that's the only thing that the romans aren't actually that keen on red hair so possibly it's oxidized but it was more associated with sleeves and then elizabeth the first made red hair very popular and then it kind of faded out again and became something that was associated with witches and I read that the Romans, and I say this as a blonde and you're a blonde, I read that the Romans thought the blondes were quite slutty. <laughs> well, that goes back to sort of Messalina, the Empress Messalina, yeah. and her adventures in brothels in Rome. Mm-hmm. They valued blonde hair, though. That's the sort of rhetoric side of it. So you've got to look a bit further than that. Yes. In actual fact, and the Romans, for instance, weren't racist. And blonde hair went kind of along with that in the sense that they were very interested in difference. So a blonde-haired slave from somewhere like Germany was valued for difference. And Roman women were very keen on blonde hair to the extent that, you know, one of Ovid's poems talks about his girlfriend having used so much hair dye that her hair has fallen out. So she's had (laughs) a blonde wig made from hair from one of the German slaves that they've captured. I mean, there's a lot of other undertones going on in that because... Not only has she got a blonde wig, which she values, it's also sort of indicative of the fact that the Romans have conquered the Germans, so they've even taken the fear. Oh, I see. So they're not racist, they're just equal opportunity imperialist bastards. They'll subdue anybody, (laughs) but they they really like blonde hair. Yeah, well, they'll subdue people, but they're very clever at making people clients and furthering the empire. This might be one of those just myths that you read on the internet, was that red lipstick was invented by the Romans as a way for sex workers to signal that they would be willing to do oral sex. Is that complete cobblers? I'm sure I've read that somewhere on the internet. I haven't read that, but I would imagine it was rubbish because lips were not a particularly prominent feature of beauty. The ancient Egyptians, etc., may have used a little bit red ochre on their lips or something like that, but really lips are not mentioned. That The basic idea of beauty doesn't change from the ancient world up until the early 20th century when Coco Chanel is photographed on somebody's boat with a tan. So up until that point, pale skin, unblemished, large eyes and beautiful hair. Eyes are like stars and the complexion is like roses floating on milk, that sort of idea. Oh, so no pressure then? <laughs> no, well, the pressure was on and that was part of the problem. You know, men set the standard and women were expected to meet it, which is very difficult if you don't use any cosmetics. And even with cosmetics, especially back in the day, and would have been very difficult because these cosmetics they were using were not waterproof. 
So they would have been running in the rain and women uh, were accused often of spending too much time putting on their makeup and then they would have had to repair it quite a lot to make it effective. And it's difficult to know how effective it was and what, I mean, it's all a matter of personal taste as well. You know, was it extreme white lead, whatever, like we envisage Elizabeth I or what? But no, lips were not a feature. I always thought they were. That's really interesting. It became a feature in the 20th century with the suffragettes wearing bright lead lipstick as a sort of act of defiance and independence. But the thing about lipstick as well is that before that, really all they could have mustered was a shade of red. There wasn't really anything else that they could have used to, whereas in the 20th century, they were able to produce, you know, vast numbers of different colours. So, yeah, off and on you get lipstick, but really it isn't part of that consistent um, ideal of beauty, no. So if you were, let's I think of my girl Cleopatra or like some like loads of money, what would your beauty regime be? How would you achieve this roses floating in milk <laughs> complexion? <laughs> What was available to them to be doing this? Well, Cleopatra was supposed to be ass's milk. I've heard that. She must yeah. have smelled awful. That sounds like an awful idea to me. Apparently you could smell her coming up the Nile because <laughs> she was surrounded by perfume. So, yeah, she would have been. she would be. She wasn't actually that attractive, judging by the coins that have been found with her face on it. But then again, these are just representations. We don't really know what the person actually looked like. They would have used coal on their eyes to get the pale face. White lead was very... Even back then, white lead. Yeah, white lead. Pliny describes how to prepare it by steeping lumps of lead in vinegar. I had no idea it was that early. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't become illegal or listed as a poison until the end of the 17th century. So up until that time, they were lead using away. it. Yeah, although... There were other options. There were sort of chalky substances, kaolin, mm. the kind of thing you would put on if you had chickenpox, for instance, on a child. You might ah, put kale. ah, yes. I just, you just opened up a childhood memory for me there. <laughs> yes, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, you would have perhaps used something like that. There were a few safer options. The red would have been anything from back in the ancient world, would have been the likes of dregs of wine. Or that makes sense. Wine bitten lips, red ochre, things like that. And then further on, if you take it right up to say the 18th century, 19th century, you've got in Jane Austen, you've got Mrs. Bennett pinching her cheeks to make them yes, red. That's right. So even basic things that. like that, yeah. Cinnabar, again, quite a dangerous sort of thing to be using. But then other things are still used today and they're perfectly acceptable. Things like almond mm. oil. The ancients knew about almond oil, things like that. They used a combination of things that we would use now and very dangerous products that we would certainly go nowhere near. Another one they would use for hair removal was quicklime. I've read that, that I've read an awful thing about some woman in a brothel trying to remove pubic hair with quicklime and it was just, I was reading it just going, I'm sorry, pardon, pardon, <laughs> what, was, what did you do? And was that quite a widespread practice? Well, it would have been because women should be hairless into oh, body hair. isn't it? Yes. Yeah, like an that eel. That's a thing. Yes. Yeah. Men would have removed hair too, but only from certain parts of their body. So. Mm. Under their arms. And right. Seneca describes a man at the baths along the road from where he lived having his hair removed 
from under his arms and squealing, etc. Oh my so god! It wasn't always an application of something that they put on. They used tweezers, etc., as well. I mean, the application of things that went beyond quickline were things like almost sort of magical, like goal of hedgehog and things like Jesus that. Christ. I've just got an image of going to the bikini waxer and of producing a hedgehog. No, just... no. <laughs> but yeah, they should be hairless apart from the crowning glory hairless. of the hair on their head. What about the arrival of Christianity? Because I'm sort of hearing what you're saying there with like the ancient Egyptians and there is some link between even religion and makeup. But how does Christianity factor into this? Did Christianity turn up and just go, no makeup for anybody? What was the church's view on this? Well, the church's expressed view was that don't try to improve on nature and beauty is a gift from God, blah, 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 that, that sort of stuff. However, a lot of what's expressed, again, is very much rhetoric. People like Tertullian in the early church who spend a lot of time talking about makeup. He's not really mainstream as far as the church is concerned. Thomas Aquinas, he... Oh, he would have something to say, wouldn't he? Go on, what does he say? Well, he did, but he thought that women could use makeup as long as it was just oh. for the benefit of their husband and they should try and make an effort for their husband as long as they didn't try to tempt anyone else. Of course, there was a okay. lot of veiling as well, so, I mean, they could have gone out with a veil on so and used right. makeup at home for their husbands, I suppose. But they would have been using it anyway for medical purposes. So there's no distinction really between cosmetics and medicine, even by the time of the arrival of Christianity. The idea expresses that they shouldn't try don't to... do it. Well, don't do it. But then again, when you think of the early church, you think, well, okay, don't do it. But the church Christians were persecuted. So does the woman who doesn't wear makeup immediately mark herself out as an early Christian and therefore lay herself open to persecution. Whether that's just my idea, that, that may, yeah. be, may not be the case. But I think one of my favourite descriptions of makeup in the medieval period comes from the Canterbury Tales, and it's the description of Alison, the young miller's wife, who is 18. And you can let me know if this was the beauty standard of medieval period. Alison is quite, like, slutty. She's a bit of a good-time girl. She's described as being 18. She's got a shiny face, high forehead, and her eyebrows are described as being really thin and arched and black as slow berries. And that always stood out to me. I thought, I wonder if she's doing something to her eyebrows. Was that standard at the time? I think in medieval times, yes. Prior to that, they tended to have a monobrow, a, a brow that met in the middle. No. And the high forehead is a medieval thing, a, a That's sign weird, of beauty. That, isn't it? What was that? Like, I've got a high forehead, so I'm very pleased to hear this, but, you know, I came a bit too late. What was the high forehead thing about? The high forehead sort of continued into the sort of Renaissance period. And that was a thing, so your hair was sort of plucked back to reveal the forehead. These things come in and out of fashion, and they're sometimes influenced mm. by representations of women who are important and well-known, they may not actually mm. be accurate as to what they actually look like. When I think of historical makeup, the image that I draw to mind is kind of very... I suppose I'm thinking of Queen Elizabeth I, the white face, the red hair, the red lips that she often gets seen with in films. Mm. Is that an accurate depiction? of her and the makeup at the time? Because that's when, it, for me, it starts to look quite harsh. But maybe it was like that beforehand. This isn't a natural look that she was no, rocking at the no, time. No, no, it's certainly not very subtle, is it? But then again, she had suffered from smallpox. So 
her skin was very marked to start with, so she concealed it. And then, of course, she used white lead, so it became more and more corroded. So she had to use more and more makeup to cover it up. So I don't think she was much of a beauty. She did promote red hair to the extent that some of her followers, including the men, for instance, the men would dye their beards red. So the red lips... She's supposed to have been wearing about an inch and a half of white lead by the time she died. Holy shit, that's that's a lot of lead. Did they know by that point that if we put this on your face, knew. things seem to be getting... Oh, they always knew? They okay. always knew that white lead was dangerous. But it's like cigarette smoking. We know that's dangerous, but it doesn't stop us doing it. So, or Botox. Or, or Botox. Or, yeah, there's loads and loads of things that we do knowing that they are actually dangerous. The Romans knew white lead was dangerous, but how many of them? I mean, when I say they knew, I'm not talking about the general populace, perhaps, you know, the, those in the scientific world or quasi-scientific world certainly knew that white lead was dangerous, but it wasn't actually listed as a poison until the end of the 17th century. I'll be back with Susan after this short break. I'm Tristan Hughes, host of The Ancients from History Hit, where twice a week, every week, we delve into our ancient past. I'm joined by leading experts, academics and authors who share incredible stories from our distant history and shine a light on some of antiquity's great questions. Was the Oracle of Delphi really able to see into the future? What can be discovered from lost civilizations? And was King Arthur actually real? You can expect all of this and more from the Ancients on History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG.
there's something else that I see floating around the internet, and I'm pretty sure that this is cobblers, but you'll be able to tell me if it is, is there is a claim that the Puritan Parliament in the 17th century, they tried to make makeup illegal because they associated it with witchcraft. Sometimes you see that floating around, and I've never properly looked into it, but I don't think that's right. Have you seen that? I think they tried, but the law was never passed. Right. Okay, that's interesting. Because that's definitely a shift in attitude then. Even if someone was trying to get that passed, the idea that makeup and cosmetics would have caught the attention of lawmakers by this point. What is happening at the time that would make Parliament and lawmakers even suggest that they needed a law against makeup? That seems a markedly different turn of events from the Queen who was just inches of white lead and, and all that lot. What was going on then? People were concerned about morals. They were also concerned about money being spent. Aha. Uh-huh. Influenced as well by the level of rhetoric that there was about, you know, anti-cosmetics, saying, you know, you shouldn't be wearing these. Influenced by religion as well, and of course the Puritans. So that kind of idea, I would think. Is it about this time or that we start to get a link between makeup and vanity and silliness and that it's just, you know, painted women and suppose sexual morality? Because that is definitely a link with makeup. Like, even I remember my grandma, like, you know, when I was did terrible makeup when I was 15, and she'd be like, oh, you look like a painted lady. And it was that kind of, <laughs> like, you've got all this makeup on, so therefore you must be quite slutty. Where does that link come from? Well, it's always been there, if you think about Jezebel. or So there's how much is too much? Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Is when does it tip over? Yeah. Centuries ago, we were looking for a natural look that presented the ideal, but you weren't supposed to make it obvious. So the no makeup makeup is very difficult. For instance, I think there are prostitutes described hanging about outside the Colosseum in Rome who um, their faces are plastered with makeup and they're reeking of perfume. The verbs that are used to describe are not very favourable. And I think it's also interesting that we got this idea of being plastered with makeup when you think that the materials they were using in ancient world, right through to perhaps Shakespeare's time for sure, were the same things they were using to paint walls. <gasps> so, and for instance, in Shakespeare's time, material that they were using to paint, the, the, the people who painted the scenery also painted mm. The faces of the actors, yeah, using the same stuff quite often. That's amazing. So that idea of plaster, you know, it's a bit derogatory, but we've taken that on as being that. But then again, does it just hark back to the fact that that was what the original materials were also used for? I love that. One group of people who I know loved the no makeup makeup, which if anyone's tried to do no makeup makeup, it's very, very difficult to do. Mm was the Victorians. They did not like showy makeup. They did not like looking rouged or made up, but their standards of beauty is so high that you would have to use something. What was the Victorian makeup look? If I was a Victorian woman and I wanted to you know, go out and promenade and impress my friends, what would be a makeup routine for me to look like I just rolled out of bed looking like this? They still like the pale look. 
They really liked the pale mm. book. They actually liked the sort of chic to look sick kind of idea, the heroin chic look. Tuberculosis yeah. was quite fashionable that, in a weird way, wasn't it? That look, super pale and like you were about to drop down dead. Yeah. So a handy hint for trying to... is one of these things that you can actually ingest rather than put on your face. It's to drink lemon juice, make yourself look pale. Does that work? I don't know. I haven't tried it. <laughs> no, right, yeah, okay. No, I'm not going to try that. <laughs> I suppose you could try um, PRG lemon juice or something like that. I don't know, but I would imagine it would have to be pure lemon juice on a consistent mm. basis. And a blusher, they did like a bit of rouge, so you could buy powdered sheets of paper that you would sort of pad it on gently. So uh, that was how they kind of went about that. And you were beginning to get sort of products as well that you could buy and you could still make your own at home as well. So mm. so. And they would still have wanted to use a nice face cream to try and create that um, pure complexion, which would also have been easier to achieve if you didn't go outside too much. Yes. Either it was in centuries past and more recently, being tanned up until the beginning of the 20th century meant that you were outside working and therefore you were lower class and of not, not such social importance. I'm really interested in that because I've got this theory that I've always had in the back of my head maybe you can tell me if it's nonsense but our perceptions of beauty and what we think of as beautiful tend to be linked to two things mainly health everyone wants to look healthy like sort of sparkling bright skins all that and wealth and you can kind of see fashions in beauty changing with wealth like for example like you were just saying there it was very fashionable to be super pale because it meant you didn't have to work now it's very fashionable to be tanned because that means that you've got enough money to go away on holiday is there something in that, do you think, that it's it's also linked to wealth? Yes, yes. It's a, the ability to purchase. Maybe not so much now because you don't tend to see what's on a lady's dressing table or whatever, but the fact that you're able to go into a posh shop and spend a lot of money on makeup, mm. nevertheless, is a mark of wealth. But in the past, there would have been the possession of a beautiful mirror or a container that was made of an expensive material which was therefore had to expense something expensive inside it that was a mark of wealth and health wise of course the pale skin the healthy complexion the, the lack of wrinkles would not only mean well according to juvenile the, the roman satirist then you would be thrown out by your husband if you got wrinkles etc if you had a pure skin and you looked healthy then that indicated fertility as well and for people of wealth that was important, the um, continuation of the family line. Talk to me about makeup in the Second World War, because then you start to see a shift in makeup becoming patriotic. Yes, it looked good for the war effort, if you like. Lipstick tubes look a bit like um, bullet casings. It was make do and mend, obviously, as well. So they were using things from the cupboard, you know, the gravy for their lines on yes. their stockings, <laughs> etc. And they kind of had to do a, a bit of that as well, because some of the cosmetic companies had branched off into helping the war effort as well, producing bits and pieces for the war effort. But yeah, women were supposed to boost the men's morale by looking good. And the suffragettes used it that way too, didn't they? I mean, you mentioned that a little bit earlier. Yeah, a bit earlier, more of a sort of act of defiance and independence. Today, the makeup industry is billions and billions and billions of pounds easily. But who was sort of like the first big producer of makeup on a mass 
scale? Like, who would you go to to buy makeup in the 20th century? Who was like the breakout brand? I would say maybe Max Factor, Makeup to the Stars. Yes. He was a sort of Russian emigre and he started off largely in the cinema. He was making wigs for people in westerns and stuff like that. And his makeup was then promoted by the stars at the time and that was his sort of tagline. He was the makeup artist to the stars. Do you think that the movie industry and the fact that we can go like television, that's helped shape our perceptions of cosmetics as well? Well, it set the standard, so we were all trying to look like these starlets, if you like. But before the movies took off, the people who marketed makeup used socialites. So And courtesans. And courtesans, yes. But largely they were into people like Diana Cooper, who was the wife of the ambassador to France and the daughter of the Duke of Rutland, I think. And she was very beautiful. And she's on the front of the book, so that's her there. Oh, that's her. Oh, wow. She, Lady Diana Manners, Nick Cooper, as I say, when she got married. And she was well known for advertising Pond's face cream. So you would look like Lady Diana if you managed to use Pond's face cream, if you could afford to to use it. Susan, you have been amazing to talk to. And my final question to you, this, this is a tricky one, but... Let's imagine that another makeup historian in 200 years' time looks back at 2023 about the cosmetic trends and fashions. What do you think they would say about it? What are our current trends and how are cosmetics being used today? Uh, make up your own language, I think, really, would be... So that was a tagline for one of the cosmetic companies a while back, but it is. It's about individualism, people doing their own thing, or perhaps... You've got goths and people like that as well. So you've got sort of groups. I'm actually going to speak to somebody later on today about freckles. Who Freckles are in. Yeah, freckles are in, which freckles never were before. So you, instead of having freckle remover cream, you've now got artificial freckles. So, yeah, things change. But then again, the pale and interesting is still there. But so is the tan. So it's a case of anything goes. And then, of course, you've got more permanent cosmetics, things that you actually can have done almost like sort of tattoos or fixed eye makeup, that kind of thing. And they're always experimenting with new things. And everybody's always interested in wanting to look young. So there's a huge market for anti-aging creams. There always has been. And there will be more, more inventions, more more ideas. I don't think we'll ever go back to sticking patches on our faces or using (laughs) arsenic or, well, I can't say too much about white lead, but I think there may be some white lead still being used. (gasps) Well, it's more to create a sort of European look. I say that like I'm shocked, but if the right TikToker told me that this would change my life entirely if I use that product, I can't promise I wouldn't go out and do it. (laughs) I've seen white lead be used or put on. I've seen somebody use it and it's actually a lot more subtle than you think. And it's got quite a sort of sheen to it. Wow. Watch this space. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, our image of the sort of, you know, heavy based makeup is maybe not all that accurate we're looking at text we're looking at artwork to find all this information and trying to sort of use different genres to try and get at what the truth is or some sense of reality beyond the rhetoric Susan you have been amazing to talk to and if people want to know more about you and your work where can they find you are you on social media I'm on 
academia because a lot of the stuff I do is academic, but I branched off into this more popular stuff because I really felt that people should know just how important makeup was. Give us the full title. It's called Common and Uncommon Sense, A Social History of Perfume. Oh, that's a very good title. I love that. Yeah, I am on Twitter. I am on Academia and I'm not on TikTok yet. <laughs> don't do it. Don't do it. It's just, it's a world of pain waiting for you. <laughs> oh, Susan, thank you so much for joining me today. I've had so much fun talking to you. That's okay. No worries. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much to Susan for coming on and sharing your research. And if you like what you heard, please don't forget to like, review and subscribe wherever it is that you get your podcasts. If you want to get in touch with us, ask us to explore a subject or maybe you just wanted to say hi, you can email us at betwixt at historyhit.com. Join me again Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, a podcast by History Hit. This podcast contains music from Epidemic Sound. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Thank you for listening to this episode of Betwixt the Sheets. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code BETWIXT at checkout.